Welcome to episode 448 of the Cyber Law Podcast. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views that we're going to express do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, or even our pets, who will undoubtedly at some point in this conversation signal their dissents. Joining me for the News Roundup, Jane Banbauer, Professor of Law at the University of Arizona and Co-Deputy Director of the Center for Quantum Networks. Michael Ellis, formerly with the House Intelligence Committee, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA at DHS, and the host of today's program. I think the big story of the week is probably the sudden kind of congealing of consensus on both sides of the aisle that maybe legislation about TikTok is necessary. Michael, a lot of new developments here. Most of them look bad for TikTok. Bad for TikTok, probably good for U.S. national security. You know, for listeners who haven't been following the saga, the Biden administration and TikTok have been locked in a, a lengthy negotiation surrounding the CFIUS review of TikTok's mobile application. And, you know, we keep getting bits and pieces coming out in the press suggesting that uh, some sort of deal might be close. But there's also been murmuring that DOJ and that the White House are unsatisfied with the contours of a possible deal because it wouldn't go far enough to address the national security concerns about TikTok. So, you know, it's pretty rare that the executive branch likes to admit that it's uh, back itself into a corner and needs help from Congress. But this might be one of those instances. Last week, we have a dozen senators of both sides of the aisle coming out with a, a bill, the Restrict Act. One of the, you know, key challenges always as a congressional staffer is finding the right words to insert into the title to make it a cool sounding acronym. Don't and they call this a backronym? That you're, where a you're backronym, back into it? that's <laughs> right. The, restricting the emergence of security threats that risk information community Communications Technology Act, of course, the Restrict Act. But, you know, this this bill would set up a, a review structure not based in IEPA, not based in CFIUS, for information communication technology transactions that might pose a national security threat. It singles out China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, Venezuela as adversary nations and sets up a procedure for, for new adversary nations to be added or for nations to be removed. And of course, because Congress is the one putting forward this proposal, it also creates a procedure for Congress to disapprove of any executive branch actions to add or remove adversary nations from the list. In short, it looks a lot like the proposal, not just proposal, sorry, an executive order that President Trump signed in 2019 for a review procedure for information communication technology that really went nowhere. Commerce never put out the implementing reg. That Executive order was based in IEPA, and you know maybe the Biden folks are are wondering whether whether it would hold up if they tried to use that to block TikTok. But this this new legislation you know won't have the Berman Amendment constraints that have I I think been the thorn in the side of the administration when it comes to IEPA authorities and TikTok. And, and the Berman promise. Amendment is the one that says yeah. essentially that information services can or information cannot be the subject of a IEPA order, information materials, I guess. And that has featured in the litigation that TikTok brought. That's right. That's right. And and that TikTok brought successfully in, in 2020 against President Trump's executive order to ban TikTok. So, yeah, this new legislative effort does not have a, a Berman Amendment-like carve-out and is therefore less vulnerable 
on on those grounds. You know, I I think you could still see some legal challenge by TikTok if it were inactive. Recall that Huawei tried to challenge legislative actions targeting it in the NDAA a couple of years ago. They they sued on the grounds that it was a bill of attainder. They lost, and I I suspect TikTok would meet a similar fate if if that's their best argument. But, you know, as I mentioned, you've got a dozen senators on both sides of the aisle, some big names with Mark Warner and John Thune signing on to this legislation, and then a statement by the White House that's not long after the bill was introduced endorsing it. So this, this could see some traction. Yeah, you can see why the administration would find this attractive, because I think it really is, in some respects, it's the supply chain program given a legislative blessing, something that it probably needed. It's been built on top of executive orders, as you say, and Berman was always a problem there. And just generally the fact that OFAC authorities aren't really well-suited, even export controls authorities aren't really well-suited to going after reliance on an untrusted supply chain. So I can see why they would think this is a good thing to get. And it costs them almost nothing to say, sure, give us legislative authority for what we want to do anyway. Yeah, of course, you know, Congress will always try to get its hooks into a couple more things while it's there. But it, it's overall a win for national security, I think, if this, if this moves forward. And it'll put the executive branch in a much stronger position vis-a-vis TikTok. Yep. It is interesting. And it'll, we'll see. It's still very hard to pass legislation. And as you say, TikTok has a billion dollars or more at stake here. They can spend it on lawyers if they don't spend it on U.S. infrastructure and Project Texas. So we're going to see some litigation around this no matter what happens in Congress. That's right. First, they'll spend it on lobbyists to try to stop us in Congress. Then then they'll spend it on, on lawyers. It's, you know, full employment for uh, everyone in the swamp. But Not that there's anything wrong with that, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Speaking of the swamp and fights over the swamp, Gene, the district court in D.C. finally got a chance to review one of the key weapons that the government used to locate everybody who set foot in the Capitol on January 6th, which was a geofence warrant that they served on, on Google. Court upheld it. That's probably the, the most thoughtful and highest ranking court thus far to examine geofence warrants, and it was a pretty big victory for the government. Yeah, this was not a qualified immunity case. That's, that's what happened. I think the, 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 last, the last district court to look at this said, oh, okay, got it. well, we don't think it's legal, but right. you didn't know that, so we're not going to exclude the evidence. Whereas now here in this opinion, Judge Contreras said, okay, what, what happened here, the way that the DOJ handled the set of warrants with Google was not a violation of the Fourth Amendment. And so that we don't even have to get to the qualified immunity question. And so it, it's worth, I think, going into a little bit of detail about how, how this process worked. So the geofence warrant processes themselves are, are a little different depending on the case. Here, in the first step, Google provided the FBI with a primary list of basically unique user IDs that based on their you know best estimate included every device that was inside the Capitol, not right outside of it, but inside the Capitol during the hours of the riot. But they also gave two control lists. So this is kind of unique. They also gave a control list of device, unique device IDs, unique but persistent device IDs that came before and after the riot. And so that way, in the next step, in step two, the government could actually remove 
the devices that were probably innocent individuals, you know, employees, others who were, who were there, you know, who were authorized to be there. And then in the third step, the government then asked for the identities of the, at that point, it was like 1,500, just over 1,500 devices that seemed to be unauthorized and inside the Capitol during the, the time of the riot. So the court kind of, you know, made some interesting statements at each step along the way. So first of all, the first step when Google gives de-identified data, they said that's not even, there's not even a Fourth Amendment interest there. And that's really important and good, I think, because providing the control list is really important. And if there had been a Fourth Amendment interest, then we'd have to ask, okay, well, now this control list is innocent people. So what does that mean? The second step... And then the reason it didn't have a privacy interest is the government couldn't tell anything about the device other than a a Google made-up identifier and the fact that it was at the Capitol in those hours. So you you weren't really getting information about any individual. Yeah, and I don't even think there's a plausible case that you could re-identify unless unless you already know that this person was a rioter in the Capitol, right? Unless you know everything, you can't really even use the data to re-identify. So then, <laughs> the, at the second step, though, the, the court made clear that removing the innocent devices was a important step or, or it, it, it might not have actually been constitutionally necessary, the analysis suggests, but it just ensured that as a whole, the court was definitely going to find that by removing the innocent devices and then only asking for the identities of the, of the ones that were left over, the FBI stayed well within the bounds of constitutionality. And then so the, the, theory, the, the reason these things are controversial, at least in my mind, is usually when you do a search warrant, you know who the suspect is and you're trying to figure out whether you have enough evidence to justify searching. And, and in this context, you don't know who the suspect is. You just know anybody, you, you, you're, you're making the argument to the court that anybody who was inside the grounds was probably in violation of law, especially if we've eliminated all the people who were cops and legislative staff or most of them. And therefore, there's a high probability that these people either were violating the law or, and and since the only question really is not, are you finding evidence against the person you're gathering the information on, but are you likely to get information or evidence in your trial? Mm -hmm. And I would have have made the argument, even people who are innocent are potential witnesses. And so at that point, you're, you're basically collecting a list of all the witnesses. And, and this seems almost overdetermined. You know, I, I actually agree with you, but I, I think this opinion leaves enough room for a court to later analyze a situation or a scenario where you can't do as much pre-purging. And right. so you know you're going to get not just the actual suspect, but also witnesses or at least potential witnesses. And I have no objection to the way this this opinion was drafted that I think it leaves plenty of room for a court to say, okay, this is not, this is not the kind of like binary search scenario where we know for sure that the person, or we have very high confidence that the person who's being revealed is in fact guilty. But we do know that everyone whose identity is revealed at least might have some useful information for the investigation. And my memory is that, that Google in the past there's not one way shrink the list of people you want it to identify. So for example, in other cases, what they have said is, 
give us all the people who were in the vicinity of the robbery within two hours. And then we're going to ask you to show us the map of their yeah, for one uh, hour. travel. And, and some of them we're going to eliminate based on where they came from or where they went yeah. before we know who they are. Yep. Like the other case that came before the Chattery case, that's exactly how it worked, was that they used a very brief amount of location history, again, without any identities attached, identifiers attached, and could draw inferences that way. And so I'm not sure who to give credit to, but this kind of collaboration between the Google is usually the you know location data provider that has sort of comprehensive enough information. But th these collaborations tend to work in terms of logically homing in on the right targets, or at least the right people who are likely to have information. The other thing I'll say about the case quickly is that the defendant, of course, tried to object that, you know, the government by getting access to identities of like 1500 phone users, that was in itself proof that it was sort of overbroad. But the court rightly explained, no, this is, this is an event where there were over 1500 lawbreakers. And so yeah, <laughs> These I'm, large sure the, numbers. I'm sure the Justice Department said, hold my beer, I'm going to indict them all. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I do think there's something a little troubling, I don't know how to put it, that now the rule is you're going to have to go back to the court two or three times to say, okay, now I want to take the next step and, and modify it and restrict it, and, and now I want to expose the identities. You'll go back to the court that issued the original search warrant. And in my experience, when you do that kind of thing, you're making the judge not a determiner of yes, no, was it legal or not. You're making them kind of a, a collaborator in your mm. investigation. And inevitably, they might say, oh, you know, I don't love this. Can you do a little more? And then the Justice Department comes back with a little tiny bit more. And then the judge has been co-opted yeah. and yeah. is inclined to say yes. And once he said yes, or she said yes, a later court is really not going to want to second guess him. So I think that's a risk. You know, it's not clear to me, though, whether you actually need the warrant before step three. You could read this opinion and see a logic to it that, geez, there's no Fourth Amendment interest until step right. three. And that might make sense, too. At the point where you're actually getting identities, that's when you want to explain to the court what you've done to try to narrow the actual identified information that you're going to get. Yeah. Well, it is interesting that the Justice Department lucked out. There is no way in hell any court is going to suppress any evidence against anybody who was at the Capitol on January 6th. And <laughs> so the Justice Department is going to milk this. He's going to pray for yeah. a, an appeal because they want to establish a, a precedent that works for him on a variety of other cases. Uh, well, and I think you're, you're exactly right. The, the same thing happened with facial recognition. Everyone hated facial recognition until January 6th. And then they're like, mm, let's be more nuanced about this. <laughs> and so, <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that reveals something about the criminal justice system that it's not really the tools that we should be either banning or allowing. What people are really responding to is whether they think the crime is bad enough to justify getting yeah. entangled in the criminal justice system. So we, we should focus on that, maybe, you know, making sure that people who are 
dubbed criminals are really actually bad and doing, you know, doing bad things. And anyway. Well, that's just, that is how this works, right? But we didn't have serious Fourth Amendment law until the marijuana usage became common. Right. I'm guessing that that people will always use the Fourth Amendment, just as they always use privacy law generally to to, to attack the substantive law if they don't like. Yeah, before that, it was gambling, right? Right. (laughs) And before that, it was... Well, you know, the, at the founders' era, it was like taxation and you know speech, <laughs> and, and we didn't even have an exclusionary rule in the founding era, right? So you know, yeah. all, all, all judge made later. Yeah. Okay. Cybersecurity. There's been a couple of developments in cybersecurity regulation. I think the most, well, not the most interesting because that will come later. Is, is TSA. Both of these are from agencies that don't ordinarily do cybersecurity. TSA has issued cybersecurity orders for airports and aircraft operators. And basically, I have to say, the last set of rules were in 2021. And they were things like, gee, you ought to have a security officer. You ought to to think about cybersecurity. Really basic stuff. These rules are a little bit more, I, you know, maybe it's table stakes, it's the right description of this. You have to describe what you're doing to improve resilience. You've got to prevent disruptions. You've got to stop degradation of the infrastructure with network segmentation policies. You know, these are all good things. Access control measures. You've got to have system monitoring that can detect people breaking into your system and have a risk-based system for patching your systems. So it now starts to feel a little like what you'd expect a Fortune 400 company to do routinely. So it's more demanding and probably better. It's not high high sophistication cybersecurity, but TSA is clearly creeping up on that for, for airports and, and aircraft operators. That makes some sense to me. All right, this one I really want to talk about. This is a story in the Wall Street Journal, basically saying something I had said a month or so ago, which is that Google gave away the leadership in artificial intelligence to ChatGPT because they were just so afraid of their shadow that somebody was going to criticize them for unethical behavior, that they'd end up with, you know, the, the... 2022 version of Tay, the chatbot who turned into a Hitler aficionado. And and so they were just frozen at the stick and could not release any of the sophisticated AI engines that they had. Jane, this sounds completely plausible to me. What do you think of that story? Yeah, I agree it's plausible. So the Wall Street Journal basically profiled two developers who were working on the large language model chatbot that Google was developing. It's now called Lambda. It went through a few name changes. And they they kept pressing the company to make the chatbot, if not publicly available, at least available to researchers the way that GPT-2, the previous version of ChatGPT, was made available. And Google, you know, thought it wasn't ready for not just prime time, but any time, I guess it was not, it did not meet the safety and fairness standards. And, and so I agree, there's one reading of this scenario where it shows Google, I mean, we all knew this was coming, that Google is getting flabby. They're bogged down by having kind of too many missions and by having a kind of responsible technology culture that doesn't pay close attention to staying current and novel. So that may be part of the story. But It's also possible, and the Wall Street Journal, to its credit, kind of touches on this. It's also possible that 
in the long run, Google's strategy might look like it's wiser than it appears right now. Yeah, I know last week on the show, Stuart, you, you talked with Nick, I think, about the Section 230 problem and chat GPT, which I think is is real. And so it's funny, I have a kind of critique of, of your comments because I think you were worried that like OpenAI and, and Google and Microsoft were going to get themselves Section 230 protection, even though in fact it's it's clearly creating new content, or at least, you know, under right. the current kind of case law, it would seem to be a content provider or creator, I mean. And I I don't think that that's what's happening. I think Google, if anything, first of all, Google might come out on the other side. They might actually want paths to liability because they're a little behind schedule anyway, uh, yeah. right? Or or they might just see this as inevitable that there is going to be more risk of liability and more risk of, if not, you know, legal risk than at least reputational risk than at first appears. And they don't want their AI to be recommending that people eat mushrooms that are poisonous. And, you know, that, that they can see... Right this litany and the parade of stories and they don't want to be the first one sticking their neck out. So there could be a business case for the sluggishness. Precaution. Yeah. Yeah. I have a rule of thumb for, I've noticed this in, in, in my private practice working for companies. Some companies are really driven by the market and, and, you know, if it works in the market, they do it. And if it doesn't work, they stop. And some are really very political and, and you, it's, it's all about people's relationship to other folks within the institution and, and who has the power. And my observation is you get the second kind of company when the company has what amounts to a license to print money. They, they <laughs> have a market niche where the money just rolls in. And what's important for people inside the company to, to rise is just to stake a claim to that money as it rolls in, whether or not yeah. they have anything to do with it. They just stake the claim and then they amass power. And Google is clearly in the printing money stage. And I wonder if a lot of the people who laid claim to the power were people, oddly, but this is Silicon Valley, were people who were saying, oh, well, we have to be ethical. Mm -hmm. we, have to, we have to make sure that we embody the values of humanism and on what about bias. And on all of that gave inordinate power to the people who said, oh, let's not do it yet. Yeah, I can't agree with you more. That, that has to be part of the dynamic. I think that's part of the life cycle too. It's not just tech firms. We see this, actually, there was a study about law firms that found something similar that... When you're doing really well, suddenly you add lots and lots of partners on the names of the buildings and you put more resources into, you know, the, the kind of either greenwashing or DEI efforts, like all, all of the things that are not the first priorities for a struggling company that's trying to break out. And that's not, you know, it's not necessarily... <laughs> bad, but it does in, in, in the long run, it assures that there are going to be other firms that overtake you. And, and, and so, okay, that's, that's, that might be happening. There it is. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I think they're going to start to feel the hop. It's clear they are, are behind now. They're going to start yeah. releasing things and taking the heat is my guess. And so we will find out whether you were right, whether they should have just kept it locked up for well, another three years. I don't know. I mean, I don't know, actually. I thought there's an overreaction to the move fast and break things mentality. There's something about that vitality of just wanting to do something new that is lacking at a place like Google and Microsoft right now. I think you're right. The pendulum has swung to being overly cautious. 
But I do think that there are, are probably some reasons for some caution in this case. Yeah. Well, the question I, I think that you've put your finger on, Jane, is, is Google's caution a rational and conscious decision that this will work out better for them as a business matter in the long run by being cautious? Or is it the product of the osmosis and, you know, Stuart used the word political, I think mean not only in like a small p political sense, not like a partisan way, but like the, the you know, internecine politics of Google leading to this result, right? Like was, was this a conscious decision to, to you know, make, make a better business play by being cautious or just, you know, the inevitable result when your company has 200,000 employees and far too many of them are, you know, not involved in the actual engineering of the product and are in these sort of extra things that you've identified as the nice to have positions. I, I suspect as, as the tech layoffs continue and uh, even in places like Google that they'll, 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 uh, they'll take a good hard look at the business case and, and they may, they may their caution to the wind or at least dial back a notch, maybe not entirely to the wind. My sense from talking to people who are in the business is the layoffs are seen as not just necessary from a business point of view, but necessary from a cultural point of view to weed out people who really aren't so interested in the business, but are interested in wokeness and the Silicon Valley politics. I think there is a feeling on the part of management that they let those folks get too empowered and that it's hurting them politically around the country. Yeah. I mean, I also just think that this is not, that this is sort of a happy turn of events that not long ago, everyone was saying that Google will never, will never be challenged on the search front that, you know, other on the advertising front, maybe. And, but, but that search, it is just so far ahead because of the data stockpiles it has that no one will be able to beat it. Here's another way to beat it. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, I guess I, to, to jump ahead just a bit, I have to say, Michael, that all of the travails that Microsoft went through with Tay and that Google has gone through here, I, I wouldn't wish them on anybody except the Chinese Communist Party. But they have this problem in spades. It's not just a few woke employees. The government is not going to let companies develop AI that makes fun of Chairman Xi. Yeah, the winning yeah, will be amazing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the change there is, you know, and, and, and I've talked about this, I, I, I think that we should do everything we can to point out to the Chinese Communist Party how often AI is going to make fun of them in the hopes that they will <laughs> sit even harder on their tech companies and that maybe Google will rouse itself and uh, compete more aggressively with some of the Chinese AI engines. All right, I wanted to also cover the... Uh, other regulatory activity on cybersecurity, because this is going to be something of a battle. If you heard my interview with Chris Inglis last week, I think the sector, the critical infrastructure sector that has by far the worst cybersecurity in the United States is water and sewer. They have no money. They have no incentive. They have no expertise. It's just very, very tough as an environment. And the administration has decided well, we're going to regulate there. And they are now locked in a battle with the uh, folks who provide those services, ma- mainly municipal water systems, saying there are a whole bunch of things that you have to do in order to provide cybersecurity that will prevent things like poisons be- from being dumped into the water supply. And the problem that the government faces there is they don't actually have much in the way way of clear regulatory authority, and they are 
trying to skip notice and comment and go straight to interpretation of the the, the authority they have. The authority they have is a law that gives them the authority to identify sources of contamination, facilities, operations, maintenance, and to monitor compliance to evaluate the adequacy of the system and its sources and its operations. So you could say, well, okay, you want to see whether the operations are adequate. Cybersecurity ought to be part of that. I think you could make that argument. But boy, to do it without even taking comment is going to produce litigation. And, and a lot of the folks who are in the uh, water sector are already signaling they intend to, to litigate this. So it's going to be a, a, a something of a Donnybrook. Yeah, better to you know, go to Congress and actually ask for the legislation in, this, uh, in this case, right? Especially when you have you know a, a clear like, possible threat that could really have catastrophic effects. I, I recall like the Iranian hack of an Israeli water system a couple of years ago where they were got pretty close to putting a bunch of chlorine in the water and killing thousands of people, right? Like there's, there, there are serious ramifications, but, you know, go, go get legislative authority and put to an agency that's capable of, of regulating, you know, in, in the driver's seat rather than sort of bootstrapping your way in through a, as you just read it, Stuart, a, a quite vague and, uh, you know, general grant of authority to the EPA. Yeah. And worse, they've gotten just enough from Congress, little bits of things saying authorizing a plan or authorizing payments to people to develop plans for cybersecurity. So you can't say, oh, we're just doing what Congress intended. They were just a little vague about it. You're really saying, well, Congress didn't intend the things that they legislated to be the only things we have to do. We, <laughs> we have a whole set of other things too. <laughs> All right, Jane, you wanted to talk about the UK Online Safety Act. And, you know, luckily it's another week. So there's another commercial service say, and we're going to walk <laughs> too if you get rid of end to end encryption. This time yeah. it's, it's WhatsApp. Do we learn anything new from WhatsApp saying that they're not going to get rid of end to end encryption? I'm not sure this law is going to no. require them to. No, we didn't learn anything new, but I still wanted to talk to you about it, Stuart, because I have some questions. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so, so, yeah, as you said, you know, Signal had already said that it would rather leave or be banned in the UK than, than, than stop its end to end encryption. And now Meta is joining the, the chorus. So I wondered if, if you see anything threatening in the, in the online safety bill in terms of scope creep. Like I, I understand at least right now, the motivation is, you know, to be able to detect child pornography, maybe terrorism, but you know, we're talking yeah, about yeah. Europe or Europe adjacent where there are all sorts of, you know, hate speech laws and other types of criminal laws that could be funneled into this. So, so that was one, one question, putting aside the end to end encryption kind of backdoor question, whether you think that the concept of online safety is going to start expanding beyond where you would feel comfortable. Yeah, don't you think I, yes, of course, but I think we we're already there, right? The, the GDPR said, we're going to, we're going to charge you, I forget, 4% of your global revenue as a fine to ensure that you do the things that we're absolutely determined you should do. And then I think it was Digital Services Act said, and you've got to stop hate speech within an hour or we'll impose the same fines. So it, it's not unknown to the Whoa. Europeans to do that. 
That's right. But but for some reason, and this, I, I, I confess, it just shows that Europe is schizophrenic. At the same time, for some reason, they are also embracing and the EU is embracing the end to end encryption, right? So they're saying the platforms have, have to do all this do content moderation. Things, but they can't get rid of the end to end encryption. Yeah, I'm but, not but, sure. Yeah, so you can basically yes. have a multi party end to end encrypted what's essentially a social network that is that is outside of the bounds of, of that European requirement. Is that right? So here's, yes. And then there's a very simple explanation in my mind for that. And it's why, why the EU is so pernicious in this area and why the UK is actually not going to have the same concern. The EU, in theory, worries about economic integration and it has, in theory, no national security or police responsibilities, very few. And so nobody's going to get voted out of the European Parliament if the cops are not arresting people. Oh, wow. And so, but the privacy has turned out to be, since since when they say they have economic responsibilities, what they mean is we have to think of ways to make ourselves as big as the United States, mostly at the expense of the United States. And so the GDPR has proven to be at least symbolically satisfying for the uh, European Union in that regard, right? They've, yeah. they've managed to cause all kinds of problems yeah. for yeah. U.S. companies. So all of those things okay. So you're giving are, a political yeah. economy explanation for this. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and and, and the, U, the UK, now that they've left, has an integrated set of responsibilities yeah. for, for all of these things. So that's why I think- Well, it does make uh, more sense yeah, yeah. what the UK- Okay, that, then that, one, one more question, if you don't mind. I have heard about this OECD declaration that I think you must know more about that would require something similar, like would require a kind of, you know, CALIA of, for digital communications. Is that something that's likely to affect either European law or, you know, the global situation? Here? I would say, I, you know, I, I spent a long time with the, part of my career at OECD working on encryption issues, actually. And it's a very funny institution, but it has no real rulemaking authority. It is a an opportunity for policymakers from the 20 or 30 most developed economies to get together and talk about their problems and try to agree on what they should do. And then if they if they adopt something, especially the smaller ones, tend to get behind it at home and say, well, this is what OECD recommends. But it's all recommendations, right. uh, and it's all subject to further lobbying in capitals at home. So, right. no, I don't expect a big change. Again, because OECD says, send us your experts, rather than having some special institutional expertise they get different experts from different agencies. And so if the experts they've asked for turn out to all be law enforcement, then you're going to get a very yeah, law enforcement yeah, friendly yeah. result. And you don't think it ha will have much influence then? It will have some. I, okay. I, I do think, you know, Silicon Valley is, is teetering on the edge of some very surprising law enforcement requirements. And they may escape them, but I think there's, a, there's still a real risk that somebody is just going to take the jump. You know, they're like 15-year-old boys at the edge of the quarry daring the other one to jump. Somebody could jump. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Michael, this is, of course, the FISA renewal. It's going to be a continuing discussion item here, but it made news in a couple of ways. One of them banned for law enforcement and the FBI, and one of them a little more promising. At least that's how I saw it. The one that I thought was terrible is it turned out that we have talked about this, how one of the compliance reports said, oh, and you did these searches on a congressman. Turns out the congressman was Darren LaHood, who was one of the intelligence committee's moderates who are trying to find a way to renew 702. They really bit the hand that feeds them there. Yeah, this is a matter of congressional relations. Probably best not to have the the guy you're counting on to be the uh, the point man for your effort to renew your critical national security authority be the same guy who you improperly query in, in a database <laughs> at that same national security authority. But, you know, it, it's interesting because Congressman LaHood, in, this, this is all coming out of the, yeah. the annual worldwide threats hearing that the, the intelligence uh, community agency heads all, all trot over to the Hill for once a year. You know, they do a back-to-back, one day in the Senate, one day in the House. And in the House session, Congressman LaHood himself as the congressman who had been queried in the 702 database. He didn't really say why he thought it was the case, that it was him, nor did Director Ray confirm that it was him. The FBI well, has it sounded very, very specific. Yeah. Well, as they, they, so they, and they always do an open session in the morning and they go to a closed session in the afternoon, you know, where they, where they can talk about classified information. So I, I can guarantee you that, that that topic was dissected in detail in the in the closed classified session. And I expect that we'll learn more about that in the weeks to come as, as details trickle out. But look, you know, that that one incident aside, I think it is good news, as you noted, Stuart, that Chairman Turner, the chairman of the House Intel Committee, has appointed, I mean, not in a formal sense, but has has tapped, I should say, several of his members. And, and Jim Himes, the ranking member on the Democratic side, has done the same for a couple of Democratic members to be the, the nucleus of a 702 reauthorization task force. They've got their work cut out for them to try to rally both of their parties. I think you'll, you know, as, as, as we've talked about before in this program, you, you'll, you'll have some folks on the right who are, who are very unhappy with some good cause about the abuses of national security authorities in the past uh, will be unwilling to vote for this program again in the future. And some folks on the left who have been critics for years, the Ron Wyden's of the world, who will be similarly unwilling. And it's a question of what reform package Turner, working presumably with the administration, can, can put together that will assuage the concerns and, and really improve the program while also maintaining its efficacy for, for countering national security threats. So the reauthorization season, I think, is just just kicking off now, but you know, watch this space for more to come. And I, I made my one of my contributions to this effort with a piece in Lawfare last week, saying, you know, if you go back and read the Carter Page affidavit, you kind of wonder why they're citing all these identified, but actually unidentified, news organizations. Why is it that we don't know which news organizations they're relying on to establish facts that are meant to? justify surveillance of an American. And it, it, it's never made clear. I assume it's just hangover from the days when they didn't identify any American if they could avoid it. And I make the argument that, in fact, it was press bias that produced the story that ended up being central to the decision to go after Carter Page. Because the government said, well, you've got a well-developed conspiracy between the Trump faction and the Russian government. And the key guy is Carter Page. And after he had met with the you know, the Russians, the uh, Trump campaign changed the platform of the Republican Party. And they relied on a bunch of relatively left-wing opinion journalists, all of whom got it wrong. The story was was biased against Trump from the start. And all that bias rolled over into the decision to do a wiretap on, on Carter Page. 
And I think having some rules around when you rely on the press and what press you rely on, what information you provide to the court about possible bias, all of those are things that are pretty easy to incorporate into FISA and not likely to prevent legitimate cases from being made. So that's my, my contribution this week to FISA reform. Maybe a small ball, but it's, it's addressing a very real problem on the right. Yeah. Well, you know, you start adding up several different small ball reforms and, you know, at the end of the day, then you, you've got something when you, uh, when you take them all, all as a whole. The other thing I'll, I'll point out from the hearings last week that I thought was a really positive development for the national security case for 702 is that several of the IC agency leaders testifying sort of talking in, in, a, in a little more detail about how this authority is actually used. And they're talking about it in the right ways, at least at a high level. Avril Haynes, the DNI, was talking about how this is a critical counterintelligence tool to be able to detect and disrupt Chinese espionage threats. Bill Burns, the CIA director, was talking about how this is something we use to help us understand cartel, drug cartel networks that are shipping fentanyl into the United States through our poor southern border, right? If you are going to get this reauthorized, you have to talk about China, cartels, cyber, you know, and and they're they're going to need some more granular examples, I think. But it's at least the the first steps towards administration talking about some of the uses of this authority that really, I don't, I don't think had ever been part of the prior debates that they had never talked about publicly. It's, you know, historically been thought of as a counterterrorism authority, which still is still valuable for those purposes. But I think they, they need to get the DNI, who's been very good on this issue so far, I think they need to get Director Burns out there talking about this for China and drugs and cyber and get Chris Ray as far away from this debate as they can. So if you were wondering how far the it's classified argument gets you, I can't help but think there's a strong wind in the fact that the House of Representatives voted 419 to zero to declassify all the intelligence we have on the origins of the Wuhan virus. That's amazing because that's intelligence collected against the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. And we're saying, we don't care about protecting the source and method. We we want you to tell us what you got. That's that's pretty surprising. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the House can't force the president to declassify a single thing. But as a political statement, it's certainly meaningful. Well, yeah, that's quite short-sighted, isn't it? So the one other thing that, that you know, I won't call it a small ball. It's more like, you know, throwing a dead skunk into onto the field. Travis Levant, who's on the, the, the uh, Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, said, I don't want to wait until the... Peacock is asked to opine on this. I want to get my views out now. And he said, I think you should have a probable cause requirement to search for data against Americans in the lake of data collected under 702. That is really a maximalist position. I was sort of surprised to see somebody nominally part of the administration after a fashion taking that view. Yeah, I, I think he's had a history uh, as a member of the P-Club of making some more aggressive statements and, and not waiting for the body to, to move as a whole. You know, I, the P-Club is, is working on, on more related to 702. They started that effort earlier this year, and it'll be interesting to see how the, the full board comes out on the program. Okay, Jane, Twitter, there have been a bunch of stories, which I find completely credible, that the FTC's investigation of Twitter is really going to be a big problem for Elon Musk and the company because Twitter signed up to an incredibly detailed set of privacy-related obligations, including, you know, privacy reviews of all their major changes in policy. And none of that fits the way Elon Musk runs his companies. And, <laughs> and so the, the, but it's highly likely that they're going to find violations. 
There's also kind of what I would describe as a, a mini flap over whether the FTC should have asked questions about the journalists who were doing the Twitter files investigations. And my, my sense was the FTC has a at least an arguable case in which they say, well, we wanted to know what access those journalists had to personal data. Although I have to say, I don't think it's a good look for the FTC to be asking all those questions. That's okay. You've already stolen my take, my hot take oh, on this. Okay. Because, yeah, I, I agree. So basically, Twitter was under a new FTC consent decree right before Elon Musk took over. And so that's the consent decree that that is in effect now, and that the FTC is leveraging to probe all sorts of things, decisions about layoffs, information about why Jim Baker was forced out, as if that needs any explanation. And and then, yes, this the, the thing that got the most traction in the news was that they demanded the identities of any journalists who aren't already known in the you know public record who've been who've been given access to Twitter. They want to know whether they got access to direct, what are they called, you know, direct messages on, on Twitter by users. We already know that, of course, they have access to the internal communications of Twitter employees, but that's not, you know, that that's not a problem. But yeah, I'd say the, the hardest thing for Musk or Twitter is that this decree, which like all of the FTC decrees, requires some pretty you know, some pretty aggressive privacy measures, including doing a privacy assessment every time there's some kind of major change. They're using this to to look for any instances where there was not such an internal privacy and security assessment before making some sort of change. And obviously, you know, Elon Musk didn't do any of those things. <laughs> of course, whether that's whether that's actually adding value to end users is another question. And also whether, you know, why the FTC is not looking, probing Google's layoffs and Amazon's layoffs. Like all, every major tech firm is under one of these consent decrees right now. Actually, I'm not sure about Amazon, but Google certainly is, <laughs> Facebook. And so the fact that they're not looking at layoff decisions, for example, with all of those other companies, I think shows that this is a that this is at least somewhat politically motivated and fits the kind of impression that many people have that the FTC under Lena Khan is kind of a roving band of kind of self-righteous activists who are looking for <laughs> looking for ways to stick it to the to to the right companies. And I don't know, this is my view of the FTC is they've always been a roving band of PR hungry enforcers and that their strength and a lot of their achievements have been picking people who are down in public esteem and and getting them to make concessions that then become standard for the industry. And yeah. they, may, they may be miscalculating here because all the people they talk to at cocktail parties think that Musk is evil and deserves to be punished. And they may not be kind of seeing how this plays out certainly in the House of Representatives. Yeah. And so this this could turn out to be a problem, but on the law, Twitter is in deep trouble here. You're probably right. I mean, again, I think the best case they could make is to try to claim that there's some kind of, you know, unfair enforcement or like there's a, you know, abusive discretion or something. But yeah, that's pretty weak, I guess, when you're, yeah. when you're I, claiming- That's a politi political argument at the end of the <laughs> yeah. day. All right, so let's do quick hits and wrap up the administration. Well, we've talked about China regulating AI. Michael, the U.S. is is 
working on yet another set of rules as part of our decoupling from China aimed at new investment in China. And it sounds like they've made a fair amount of progress in getting something put together. They're going to do an executive order and then regulations at Treasury and Commerce and maybe even bring the Europeans a lot. Maybe. I suspect there's actually less to this than meets the eye. You know, outbound investment review rules have been rumored for, for quite a while. The, the latest bit of news is that Treasury and Commerce, as they were required to do by the Omnibus bill late last year, sent reports to Congress telling Congress how, you know, how many resources, how much, how much money they would need appropriated in order to, to run an outbound investment review regime. Unsurprisingly, both said, don't worry, we'll include it in our, our budget submissions. Yeah. So we'll, we'll, basically, we'll let you know, but we'll, we'll, you know, We'll fold it in there. I, I suspect this is this is going to keep grinding forward, but that these agencies aren't wild about the task, and at least not in any outbound investment review scheme that would really be meaningful. the The latest you know rumors that I've been hearing is that it's likely to be a, a voluntary program when it's at least when it's when it's first rolled out. So I, I suspect we're still a few more months away from any executive order, and when we do see an executive order, it may it may underwhelm. Yeah, it makes sense. If you ever ask Treasury, should we do anything about investment anywhere? They say, oh, let the market decide. And they kind of have to be nudged into it by political reality. That may happen. You know, the CFIUS system we have today was nudged into reality by three or four big lurches in the direction of more regulation. And the same thing could happen here. Yeah. And, and there's been nudging on Treasury and Commerce to do more in this area for a while. But as you know, it's, it's against their... Their nature as institutions. Yeah. Okay, Jane, Twitter lost finally. I think this is at the end. I can't believe Elon Musk is going to spend money appealing yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, about whether it's transparency report. Remember those? This is like, you know, it's like a Britney Spears song. The, the transparency reports, which we're going to tell tales about how it responded to national security letters and the government said, no, you can't. And the court finally has said, that's right, you can't. That's right, you can't. Yeah. So on one hand, it seems sort of surprising because all Twitter wanted to do is report the accurate aggregate numbers of, say, national security letters that it received during a six-month period. But under the USA Freedom Act statute, the statute allows these companies to report in bands of like either 100, 500, or 1,000, depending on what type of process they're talking about. So you could report 0 to 499, for example, but no Uh specific number. And so what this really means is that Twitter wants to be able to report even a 0, and does that have national security implications? At first I thought, oh gosh, I don't know, this seems like an over-classification problem, but then the more I thought about it, actually reporting a 0 does have national security implications. Especially (laughs) on the day when you don't report a zero. (laughs) Well, I I think there, I mean, I think think the government, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but my sense is that they're trying to create two impressions at once. They're trying to make sure that people don't feel like they are unjustifiably being surveilled. So they don't, they want the numbers to be low in that sense, but to a different audience, they want the numbers to be high. If, if there are, you know, terrorists, criminals, other bad guys, the numbers might deter or, you know, make it more costly to engage in communication. And that's good. So yeah, in the end, I I saw the logic of just not wanting to have these reports at all. But I'm still sort of surprised that the First Amendment, you know, at at this First Amendment 
outcome. You could see it going the other way and, and, and fitting quite well with, you know, the New York Times, Pentagon Papers and other cases. This uh, is, this is, it is classified and Congress has spoken, right? Congress, Congress right. said this is, this is what we want. And, and so you've got two branches of government saying that they don't think it should be disclosed at that level of granularity. I think yeah, they, for what it's worth, I was a, a staffer at the time working on the USA Freedom Act and the tech companies absolutely wanted to disclose the exact number. Yeah. And this was the compromise, right? Now, I mean, I, that doesn't change the, the free speech, uh, the First Amendment implications that Jane noted, but this is a matter of, you know, well, the legislative history involved here, to the extent anyone cares about that, the reporting bans was exactly what was what was bargained for. Yeah, but I mean, the First Amendment doesn't care what, <laughs> what yeah, the yeah, legislature... I think it's a Stuart's point of, you know, you, you've yeah, got two, two branches. branches of government saying that they think this is a, Opining. An, yeah. an important thing, yeah. And the national security itself, of course, is is always of you know, high, the highest stature that you can get in terms of the government's interest, so... Plus, transparency reports, really, they are, you know, so 2015. They, yeah, but then they, what's the risk? I, I, do, I, I'm, I am somewhat skeptical of both the value and the risk of these things, but... <laughs> so I, I do think if you are thinking you might be a target and you can kind of see when you might have become a target and you see changes, you mm. might learn whether you were or were not. No, like during six months, there were 40 national security letters. What can you learn from? Can you really learn from that? Bigger harm is that it looks like maybe it will look like there's a tapering and there just aren't as many investigations as one might think. But I don't know. I'm not sure. (laughs) Okay. Last topic. The group of funded Catholics who are presumably conservative Catholics who went looking for priests who were subscribing and users of Grindr and a few other dating sites and used it to talk to bishops about their priests. I assume we're all supposed to be shocked. Jane, are you shocked? (laughs) I'm not shocked that they were able to find some priests who have gay hookup apps on their phones. The question is whether this was legal, which I think the reporting, you know, rightly points out that there, there isn't any statutory prohibition of this kind of sale. Uh, by the way, this group, I think, spent like over a million dollars on this data. So it was not a cheap operation by any means. How, but, how, um, do, you spend, how do you spend that? Do they spend I, it trying to de-anonymize people? Well, I assume that they were already getting the data in in identified form, but... I just, I'm puzzled. Uh, yeah, you certainly, you, 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 you could get it in certain circumstances. If, if you create a profile, then some people could send you yeah. their, <laughs> their dating requests. I was a little puzzled about where this data came from because we found out about it not because of how they got it, but because of how they used it. Right. Well, that well now I, I mean now I'm I'm wondering how how they got it. I assumed that they paid a lot for an identified data that may have even had been completely you know had a legal source. So you know maybe we'll we'll shed some light. But we'll, we'll try to find out. And we'll let everybody know next episode. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Jane, Michael, thanks for joining us. For the listeners, send us your questions at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Leave us a review and we'll read the entertainingly abusive ones on the air. This has been episode 448 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. Hold my beer, I'm going to indict them all. <laughs> <laughs>